I'm Bijan Karimi. Welcome to The Reflecting Pool, where I discuss thesis research being done by CHDS students, how the topic relates to the broader Homeland Security enterprise, and what it's like to be part of the master's program. Jack Anderson is a senior analyst in DHS's Office of Infrastructure Protection. He started his career in disaster response as an insurance investigator, but his professional trajectory totally changed after 9-11. He became fascinated by how people quickly develop solutions to problems they never expected, like the evacuation of a million people from Lower Manhattan. The inspiration for his thesis came from his interest in medieval and Renaissance maps with dragons. To early mariners, the dragons and other sea creatures represented unknown risks on the seas. Jack was curious how those intrepid explorers prepared for things they didn't fully understand, and how this could be applied to the homeland security enterprise. In his spare time, he is the father of three, restores antique axes, and utilized his jazz band experience to become a techno music composer, a selection of which was used for the intro to the episode. When I think of a Renaissance man, Jack is the guy that comes to mind. We had our conversation in Santianez, California, where several cohort members gathered for a classmate's wedding. To understand unbounded risk, whether on the high seas or in homeland security, we started by discussing what risk actually is. You cite threat and catastrophe as examples of unbounded risk, and you proceed to define them. Well, everybody knows what risk is, but apparently not. So why was it necessary for you to define those? Each of those terms, threat and catastrophe, are exemplars, I think, of how our ability to manage national security problems with the tools of risk is eroding. We still talk about national security issues using the language of risk, but modern security challenges from terrorism to cyber attacks and pandemics are, I think, killing the very idea of risk. Remember, risk is a pretty new invention. It came about because a couple of French mathematicians in the 1600s were arguing about a gambling strategy for a dice game. And they came to this really stunning realization that outcomes from throwing six-sided dice were ordered and bounded, this made room for chance. And it clears this space for uncertainty. So whereas traditional thinking was that the past determined the present in this logical, inevitable chain of events, um, risk opened up the possibility of different outcomes. We commit resources against things that we think might happen based on what we know about the future. I define threat in the thesis as official danger. So it's the possibility that something bad might happen. We don't know enough about the future to turn threats into risk exactly. Threat shows us there's no such thing as absolute risk. Risk is inherently subjective because it's about value and what we value varies. So like a sentimental photograph might be more valuable to you than a car, even though the car is monetarily more valuable than the photograph. And I think the same thing is true of a lot of uh, national security concerns. National inviolability against terrorism might be more important than the actual cost of a terrorist attack. So that changes the way that we would frame what we would want to do to counteract that problem. Um, catastrophe, in the same way, I think, shows another dimension uh, that, of risk that we can't measure. It's, it's a rupturing of our expectations. It's an overturning of what we thought would happen. And the outcome of catastrophe is not measurable. In both cases, to do risk, we would need to know how likely something was and how bad it might be. And threat and catastrophe prevent us from doing that. Slovic and Taleb write about how humans perceive risk. And in your review of their works, which is quite a bit in your thesis, you cite social and cultural amplification of risk and yeah. its influence on human affairs. So how does someone's perception of risk impact the whole planning process? 
Taleb's interesting too because he's he actually comes from a quantitative background. He wrote The Black Swan and Anti-Fragile and just most recently um, Skin in the Game. And in the planning process, Lee Clark, he looks at how security organizations end up being required to make plans for things they can't do. Looking at these worst case scenarios, these terrible possibilities that are out there, these undefinable threats, and having quite naturally um, social expectation turn to the security organizations that are publicly funded to deal with these and basically instructing them to go and build plans for things we can't do. There's a, a really interesting German artist named Simon Menner who does these beautiful photographs of landscapes, wooded landscapes, and uh, he works with the German army in producing these photographs and he has had combat snipers conceal themselves in these photographs. And so they're really interesting to look at, especially once you know that there is danger somewhere in this beautiful forest scene that you're looking at. It changes the way that you look at the landscape of it, and it creates this kind of sense of anxiety, knowing there's something that might be out there. So then how does that get to the idea of the precautionary principle? The precautionary principle, broadly speaking, is basically just better safe than sorry. You know, that, that makes sense. I think that's hard to to argue with when you think about that, yeah. But what does that actually mean in terms of what kind of plans we should produce, what kind of capabilities we should build, what we should spend money on from a national security perspective? There's a couple different forms of the precautionary principle. Uh, Sunstein, his, his view is that the precautionary principle puts the burden of proof on someone who's proposing an action. So if you wanna do something, you gotta prove it's safe. But his argument is if you actually carry the precautionary principle out to its logical conclusion, you end up paralyzed because you're surrounded by all these risks on all sides. You can never guarantee safety, so you, you end up stuck. Um, I think there's another version of the precautionary principle which creates a bias towards action. In particular, our response to a terrorist attack, for example, ends up with this action-biased precaution of basically saying, no, the burden of proof is on you to prove that this action's not reducing risk, because otherwise we're going to do stuff. I think we end up living with that kind of precaution, both paralytic precaution, but mo much more so with the bias towards action kind of precaution. You paraphrase Herman Kahn when you say, and I'm quoting from your thesis now, the style of thinking about the unthinkable and pondering the impossible came with security analysis against nuclear threats, which has a great deal in common with the conjectural apocalyptic imagination that informs worst case scenario planning and precautionary security measures. How does that relate to the idea of probabilistic versus possibilistic thinking? I can actually blame Lee Clark for that tongue twister distinction. It's a really, he, he makes that, that same point that um, we have a tendency, I think because risk has become such a dominant way of looking at the world um, in modern society, we have a bias towards what he calls probabilism. And I think you can just, that, that's sort of an analog for risk thinking, for thinking about rationality in terms of what we can calculate. And I, that's, I think, the appeal of risk in the first place, is that if you're going to go to your appropriating body as a public agency and say, give us this amount of money and we will adjudicate it rationally and responsibly against the array of dangers that are out there, and it communicates a, a level of uh, trust that someone should have in you that you're going to be responsible with the limited funds you're allocated. Um, so that's probabilism. Possibilism, how do we deal with what's possible, not just what's probable, is a really important skill to be able to develop as, as organizations. What does it look like to be responsible with limited funds in a way that's not necessarily risk-based? I don't know that we've answered that question. That's part of what I was kind of interested in exploring and writing this is, 
how do we do that? What tools do we need to do that? What is, what's the right kind of organizational structure, the right kind of security plan to develop that is based on this impossible array of possibilities that's out there? But doesn't that allow then someone, when you're moving from probable to possible, anybody can come up with what's possible? And that gets to the securitization issue of anything I say, this is possible. How does that way of thinking of effectively anybody can say anything is possible, influence the way that emergency managers are then forced to prepare. Right, that's, that's the real challenge. I think threat politics is the answer. It opens up high uncertainty situations like that, open the field up to all kinds of different pressures about what we should worry about. If all things are possible, then who gets to be the arbiter of what possibility we're gonna prepare for? That makes security suddenly not just science, it makes it political. It makes it relational. It makes it uh, based on fear. Um, it makes it you know, based on power and influence. So all of a sudden, a whole bunch of social science and interpersonal concerns start to intrude on what you would think of, you know, what under the risk frame of thinking is much more either actuarial or pragmatic or expertise-based. And there are all different kinds of competing claims to expertise. And uh, I think you end up where we are, which is sort of a blizzard of competing demands. Um, you know, do we need to worry about electromagnetic pulse weapons, volcano eruptions, particle accelerator disasters? When scientists turned on the CERN accelerator, that was one of the things that they considered. Right. Well, we may be flipping the switch on our, right. on, on creating a black hole right now. Is this going to collapse the Earth into a hundred meters across hyperdense sphere? So, all right, how do you make a risk decision about that? The possibility that this could happen, however remote, should that mean we don't do particle accelerators? I don't, and I don't think we have very good tools for making that decision. So if you think of the sort of totemic uh, risk equals threat times vulnerability times consequence, all right, threat equals zero, vulnerability equals question mark, and consequence equals the entire population of Earth and all of human history and past and future. <laughs> so <laughs> carry the two. <laughs> and risk equals, and, yes. right. So, right, that, that we end up right back with the precautionary principle and being either paralyzed or unable to say no to an action. One of the findings from 9-11 report was the failure of imagination that, hey, this was possible. So some of the security leadership actually brought in Hollywood scriptwriters, people with imagination to say, here's what else could come up. Right. That gets to the possibilistic versus the, the probabilistic. How does the social construction of danger what people think influence their understanding of risk and the creation of the planning scenarios that we as emergency managers have to use. The idea of scenario planning was to come up with plausible futures, multiple different plausible futures. The purpose of doing that is not to say which one we think is more likely, commit to it, and commit resources to it. The purpose of doing it was to recognize the uncertainty of the future and say, how do we build an organization that's agile enough to sense and respond to these competing futures as they start to emerge. And how ready can we be to do that? But I think the way that scenarios have um, almost inevitably end up getting used is the opposite. It's almost inevitably that we think, you know, the, the same kind of structured analysis that drives um, courses of action, basically. You know, A, B, and C, if we're gonna go with A, or in the case of the national planning scenarios that were developed out of HSPD 8, became this kind of, let's develop a range of scenarios, let's analyze common capabilities across those scenarios, and then um, build against those capabilities. That has a tendency, I think, to box you in 
more than we should be boxed in by scenarios, even a range of scenarios. I think we need to get back to, when we think about scenario planning, the purpose of scenarios, we should get back to, I think, that original purpose, which is that the purpose of it is to exercise the organizational imagination and to increase an organization's ability, like I was saying, to sense and respond, to understand when things are changing, and to be constantly aware that the future is in flux. Scenario planning shouldn't make you bold about the future. It should make you humble about the future. I think that's the lesson for scenarios, is that the purpose of it is to increase this sense of not knowing. When faced with a scenario and we're doing planning or a scenario in an exercise or a real world example that comes up, one of the ways that we deal with it with uncertainty is to try and bring some amount of structure to it. And one of the things that we do is use the incident command system. And that's something else you talk about. You talk a little bit about benefits, limitations, and this concept of the organizational illusion of orderliness. And then you describe some changes in military doctrine and an evolution towards the idea of decentralization. Maybe ICS isn't the way to go, and it's more about improvisation. How can this be applied to the current threat and hazard planning process? In particular, in emergency management or national preparedness broadly, we've ended up with a lot of inherited doctrines just because a lot of the homeland security apparatus or the idea of a homeland security enterprise is new new territory. And ICS, I think, is one of those inherited doctrines. You know, it comes out of 1970s CAL FIRE stuff and trying to figure out how do we create a system for the disciplined deployment of like resources across different political areas. It's a great system for doing that. Uh, The military is very similar with its command and control models and, and history of command and control. One of the most, I think, interesting problems or interesting evolutions in military doctrine is this um, shift towards you know mission command? You know Stanley McChrystal and his experiences in JSOC uh, came up with this team of teams concept. But what they're both recognizing is that when you're confronting inefficient, decentralized, highly volatile problems, trying to impose kind of a master plan on top of them or have the uh, command and control organization that lets you sort of move pieces on a chessboard not the right way to deal with it because uh, the change is too fast and it's happening in different areas and the commander the command cell the command center of an organization is not going to be able to sense and respond to those changes rapidly enough so it kind of flips the organization upside down but the way that they have started to approach these is by building these more decentralized systems that create kind of modularity of trust and push a lot of authority down to the field level and the role of the command staff, if you can even call it that anymore, is much more to be this cultivator of shared situational awareness and purpose. And I I think ICS needs a similar kind of renovation. One of the things that is really challenging for ICS as a, a model is how do you deal with security problems or catastrophic issues that span political boundaries, that span multiple different disciplines that require you to bring in partners you've never worked with before? Where do they fit in the organizational structure? I I think we got to figure out how to take this approach and make it really adaptable. You know, I think ICS, we talk about it like it should be adaptable and flexible and scalable, but really it's mostly, I think, building block. It is able to expand and contract, but it's not necessarily able to radically change when it needs to. Not the problem doesn't take the shape of the management system. One way to counter unbounded risk is the pursuit of modularity and the creation of anti-fragile systems that deal with randomness. How do these concepts reduce risk exposure 
and then get applied to event response. There was, uh, I I keep sounding like a bibliography, but there was this, um, there's a really interesting paper written in the 1950s, I think, at Princeton. This uh, anthropologist was looking at this Canadian tribe that is a, a nomadic tribe that follows the caribou. And they practice uh, scapulomancy. They take the shoulder blade of a caribou, they heat it, the medicine man heats it over the fire, and it cracks, and he interprets the cracks as a map, and it tells them where they would go next to follow the caribou. And the, uh, the guy that wrote this paper, Omar Khayyam Moore, his argument is that, uh, well, first of all, he says this is a very successful tribe. It works. Scapulomancy works for keeping them alive. And his argument is this isn't really magic. What it does is something that's very hard to do, which it effectively randomizes human behavior. Humans tend to act in really regular patterns, whether we mean to or not. And that this practice of scapulomancy helped the tribe randomize their behavior. And the caribou, which is an adaptive adversary, are not able to predict the movements of the tribe. And so they're able to successfully basically outwit the caribou with this introduced randomness uh, through this kind of you know, totemic process. I use that as an example to illustrate the way that creating uh, different systems that are that are not based on trying to impose regularity can actually be really successful strategies. And I think we can apply that to organizational structure and to emergency management planning, that we need to build structures that are built for improvisation and built for adaptation and really radical change in a way that a lot of our current approaches just aren't. So I think modularity is one way to to think about it. I think that the central narrative of disaster and catastrophe is not the deployment of known quantities, it's the incorporation of unknown quantities. And I I think that's that's what we experience in crisis and in catastrophe is we're suddenly having to bring people to the table that weren't part of the planning process, that don't know ICS, that weren't part of the system. And the expectation shouldn't be, you guys need to get on our system. The expectation should be, how do we do this? How do we work as a team on this? So I think what's needed here is not a common system. It's a common skill. In your final chapter, you talk about the doctrine of multivalence, and you break it into four different characteristics, adaptability, pathfinding, map making, and reconciling. Describe these characteristics and how using them is going to improve security doctrine. We are in the business of outliers in the Homeland Security Enterprise, and that we ought to have our capabilities organized in a way that is built for dealing with outliers, not for dealing with the quantifiable, not for dealing with the predictable. I picked these four, I think they kind of encompass the range of things. I defined them roughly in this way. Adaptability is the capacity to sense and quickly respond to changes in the risk environment. Pathfinding, I've said that's the capacity for confident exploration of uncertainty. The third is map making. I think map making needs to be the ability as an organization to produce maps for uncharted landscapes. What does it look like to produce a plan for something that's not a a scenario that we can fully get our hands around? The, The fourth is reconciling, and that's really a disciplined organizational humility about the limits of what we can do in terms of security and the limits of our knowledge in projecting it, basically trying to build readiness for the unthinkable. When I read your piece about map making, one of the things that came to my mind was some of the Knaven framework. 
how do, how do you see that, that connecting in that idea of how do we position ourselves mentally so that we can then move to a place of, of action? That framework idea of having these kind of four quadrants that have different tools that are needed for each kind of way of conceptualizing a problem is good to be able to, you know, kind of say, okay, am I dealing with chaos or complexity or complication? Or I think that's a good, kind of a useful mental organizing tool. The step that I don't, I don't think is widespread in people taking it is then, all right, so let's apply that to my organization. Not just having that as kind of a cognitive aid, but how do we actually apply that to our thinking? What does an organizational response look like when we know we're in chaos mode? I think right now what it looks like is pretending we're not. And in doing that, this is getting a little abstract, but I think we've decreased our thinking surface area too much. There are these bootleg books that floated around in when I was doing jazz band called Fake Books. It's basically a lead sheets for a bunch of jazz standards. And each jazz standard gets one page and it's basically, here's the melody, here's the key, here's the tempo. It's a kind of a, an outline of how that song is supposed to go. And that single page is the plan. That's the plan for the team. Here's the melody, here's the direction, off we go. I think we need to think about security planning in a pretty similar way of uh, basically not trying to have these you know, 1500 page operational plans with 14 annexes and 30 different uh, you know, appendices for each different emergency support function plus this other you know, hazard specific annex. These are not scripts that we're following during disaster. We know that. I think we need to think about planning much more in terms of this fake book concept. How do we build a starting point for improvisation? And how do we train an organization to be able to do that? I think it requires a different approach, a little bit towards individual expertise and really a reliance on individual expertise. Our plans ought to be melody and direction and off we go. I think we ought to figure out what an organizational structure looks like that lets every individual piece of expertise that you've got in your security organization be a sensing, thinking, semi-autonomous part of responding to this and being able to communicate to the whole. It's interesting to look at org charts and to think about org charts as kind of maps in a way. This pyramid structure, I think, is problematic. I think when we think about a crisis management organization, I think we ought to start with a circle and think about crisis as the meeting place of a bunch of different expertises and figuring out what does is, what is communication and coordination look like in this kind of space? Not direction from the one person who's sort of the grandmaster thinking about stuff, but how do we bring all these capabilities together and learn from each other and um, respond? The experience of being at NPS, talking to one another, was one of the most valuable resources for me. What class or resource do you think was the thing that helped you the most? Well, without question, the most important part in the classroom work was the introductory class. Really, probably the first two hours at NPS. Chris Bellaby did such a great job of reading the room and breaking down the room. And, but it helped bring out the capabilities and intelligence of all the different people in, in the room. And every cohort is such an interesting mix of decades of expertise and capability and you know, attitude and personality. And so it helped you get to know everyone better and it helped you get to trust everyone better. And I, I said many times, I think NPS is two different classrooms. It's the classroom academic work and it's the cohort sitting together, getting to know each other and learning from each other. So the name of your podcast, The Reflecting Pool, our conversations out by the pool, just sitting around having a beer, I think were as educational, if not more than the classroom time. So. 
What would you say to someone who's applying? I know a lot of people get, get assigned to go to CHDS, and I know they are often told, you know, you will write a thesis about this, and it will come back, and it will benefit our organization. And I would tell them to try and be like resistance fighters against that. <laughs> um, I, I think uh, it's an opportunity to step outside your organization and figure out something that's valuable, not just to your organization, but to security broadly. Homeland Security as an idea was born out of national trauma, and it's still kind of shaped like this thing that emerged from a fire. And having a place that is dedicated to how do we bring together everyone from public works to you know counterterrorism, intelligence, firefighting, police, that's what Homeland Security is. It's this meeting place between all these different disciplines. In the interview, Jack mentioned pictures from Simon Menner. I got one and put it in my workspace as a reminder that in everyday beauty, threats can lurk, and my team and I need to be ready for the unexpected. You can find them on Wired.com. I hope you've enjoyed hearing about Jack Anderson's thesis, Risk Unbound, Threat, Catastrophe, and the End of Homeland Security. For additional reading, he also adapted his thesis into a Homeland Security Affairs Journal article titled The Fortress Problem. CHDS is the nation's Homeland Security educator and part of the Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey, California. Since 2002, CHDS has provided a neutral educational forum where current and future Homeland Security leaders discuss policies, strategies, and programs needed to counter terrorism and handle catastrophic events. For information on the Master's, Executive Leadership, or other academic programs, visit chds.us. 